What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have like a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. To this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. On this week's show, we have Brenda Elsie, associate professor and undeniable genius at Hofstra University, who is currently in Argentina. Ooh. The indomitable and brilliant Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer at Think Progress in DC. And I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance sports writer, cat lover, and CBO of Burn It All Down in Toronto, Canada. CBO being Chief Badass Officer. <laughs> she gave herself that name, everyone. I <laughs> <laughs> gave myself that name. This week, we will be discussing Shannon Miller and coaching discrimination against women and LGBTIQ folks. Brenda has an incredible interview with the amazing Gabby Garton, who is goalkeeper of the Argentine women's national team. And we talk FIFA and their ideas about women in football. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into it, let's chat about March Madness. Lindsay, your thoughts. Oh my gosh. A 16 beat the one in the men's tournament for the first time ever. And it was really exciting to see, I have to say. I was at a hipster bar in DC where nobody cared at all, except for me, who was standing there, <laughs> like watching the game, like gasping out loud every time UMBC made a shot. And it, they just kept pulling away in the second quarter. And look, UVA, Virginia hit, who was the number one overall seed. It must be said, making this more special. But they had just beaten my beloved Tar Heels in the final of the ACC tournament. So I was really, you know, I've never super believed in in UVA and what they do. But after they, like, they were so good in that ACC final that I started to really believe. And then, I mean, they just got decimated. And look, I feel bad for the guys, but it, it was history and it was really fun to watch. That's amazing. I actually was really excited to see some shout outs. The UMBC was shouted out by Leisha Clarendon, actually. That was, but, but this was in the, the women's team is the only two 16 seeds to ever beat a number one seed. And I think there was a lot of respect there because UMBC replied back and said, Harvard women's basketball was the first. Don't forget that they laid the groundwork. It just took us 20 years to catch up. So I was tickled pink by this sort of respect. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was really humble. And the UMBC, whoever's running that Twitter account, like they should just get a pay raise because they've just been wonderful and enjoying the moment. And it's been really exciting. And I think that for me, and we all know I'm completely obsessed with UConn, and Gabby Williams loved my tweet. So, hi, Gabby. (laughs) 
She didn't like it. She loved it. Is, and, is, is uh, that like, a new Facebook bu- or is that a new Twitter uh, button that I missed? The love button? Uh, yeah, love. <laughs> well, I'll just translate it. No, I, we all know I'm obsessed with the Huskies. That's no surprise. But And they are my 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 pick. And I show the same pick as Barack Obama. I'm just going to lay that yeah, out there. Yeah, you're really going and, out and, on a limb you know. with the Yukon pick. So. <laughs> 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 Statistically impossible. (laughs) But uh, I'm not risque in my investments, okay? Let's just say that. But I I know I love them and I'm like totally obsessed with them. And hi, everybody. Hi, Batuli. Hi, Kia. They're definitely all listening. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. They should be. But I love love it. And I love that the excitement over women's basketball, college ball, because I live in Canada and we don't see women's like university ball and we should. Canada, you need to wake up. But it's really exciting. And the 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 excitement over this is I fell in love with women's ball watching Syracuse. Like I fell in love about 13, 14 years ago because it was just so pure and so exciting. And I, you know, I just think that it, it's wonderful. And Bren, you were. What about Argentina? Are you getting any news? No, about March no. Madness. March Madness is 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 a non is a non thing here. They're not interested. Argentina has its own basketball league, which is which is really great and interesting and very technical. And there's a lot of interesting commentary on how the Spanish and Argentine leagues are different from the U.S. in terms of strategy and play. But sadly, there there though there is club women's basketball, it certainly does not get television coverage um, that it should. But I'm hoping they hit a couple games. That's amazing. Isn't Manu Ginobili from Argentina? Oh, yeah. He is. He is like one of the demigods of this place. <laughs> his his yep. face is plastered yep. everywhere. So Manu Ginobili and also his brother. And they've, you know, they're sort of icons next to like a Messi here. And they've done a lot to kind of charge basketball. I, I hope it would be nice if there's a little allyship in having Manu Ginobili, you know, shout out the fact that these clubs have women's teams, too, that could use a little, little support. Yeah, we're gonna we'll contact him and get on that. I love the spirit. <laughs> you can go through Timmy, right, Shereen? You can go through just get Timmy to reach out to him. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, right. Oh god. I hear they're friends. I'm waiting for Timmy to <laughs> I'm waiting for Timmy to email me back. It's never happened. Shocking. Um. <laughs> what are you doing, Tim Duncan? Get with the program. So moving on. Lindsay, you wanna take us in? I would love to. All right. So let's take you back to December 6th of 2014, when Shannon Miller, who was the coach of the University of Minnesota Duluth Bulldogs hockey team, women's hockey team, she coached them to a 4-1 win over Ohio State, which was her team's 11th win in its last 13 games, making them the number seventh ranked team in the country in women's division one hockey, her 375th career victory, more wins than all but three coaches in NCAA division one history. Nine days after that in 2014, she was effectively fired. The athletics director, Josh Burlow at UMD said that this was a mat, that this was one of economics She was, you know, the most decorated coach in NCAA women's hockey, which means she was also the sport's highest paid coach. So they just simply couldn't afford her anymore. However, at the time, Miller stated that she would be willing to take a pay cut. 
She was already making $93,000 less than the men's coach. And she said she'd be even willing to take even more of a pay cut than that in order to remain in the job. But the university let her go. She then filed a lawsuit against the school saying that her termination was a result of discrimination and that the university had retaliated against her for filing Title IX complaints while she was employed. Well, I actually have good news for you all. (laughs) This Thursday, a Minnesota jury said that the UMD must pay her $3.74 million in lost wages and emotional distress. And she said, quote, it's a big day for women, women in general, but especially women in college athletics. Now, this is a really... I'm really glad we're talking about this because I don't think you can overstate what a big deal this is and how significant this is for women in coaching in college sports. In 1973, 90% of women's sports teams in the NCAA had female coaches. Today, that number is 43%. One of the negative things that's happened from Title IX, there's been a lot of positive, but one of the negative things has been that as these women's sports have received more investment by the universities, as they've had more incentive by federal law to have women's programs and invest in women's programs, these jobs became more desired, better paying, and therefore went to men more often than not. So you, you've seen a trend of women in coaching who have been treated completely unfairly and not given the same opportunities and not been treated, you know, appropriately. And we've recently had a couple of lawsuits that have showed that, you know, that the law is beginning to recognize this and that people can see this. And it's great to see these women coaches, you know, fighting back. It's very important to know that Shannon Miller, this is also a, a win for LGBTQ equality in coaching. She was harassed. She was called, you know, I hate to even use this word, but, you know, in her locker, there were notes calling her a dyke. She, you know, she was mistreated by the university. And that was a part of this was sexual orientation discrimination as well. So look, it's a big win for women and for LGBTQ women in coaching. What did you guys take from this? Well, first of all, Shannon Miller is like a legend. She's a Canadian player as well, and she's coached the former. She's a former coach of the women's national team, hockey team. And it wasn't. I think part of this process in University of Minnesota Duluth was that it wasn't just Miller. There were also her partner and former UMD softball coach Jen Banford and the former basketball coach Annie Wiles did file suit. So it wasn't just Shannon. This is a systemic problem at UMD that discriminates against women and LGBTIQ folks. I'm really, really glad to hear the settlement amount. She deserves it. I mean, she said something like she had applied to 27 jobs and couldn't couldn't get anything. And that's that's horrific, particularly with a person with a track record like Miller's. Like she's undeniably a very talented coach and has taken that team far. So I think it's it's time that these men in these positions, and I will always blame men because misogyny is the root of so much evil, that they pay up. They should absolutely remunerate her. Pay up. Pay up that money for being assholes. I mean, a man up. with her record would never have trouble finding a job, ever. <laughs> no, like that's no. It's inconceivable to think about that. Well, a man in her position would have never right. lost his job in the right. first yeah. place. So They always seem to come up with the money to pay the men. It's amazing. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, there's there's always imag- like these imaginary buckets of cash if it comes to saving a men's program. I mean, look at University of New Mexico that's just willing to forgive the debt of the entire <laughs> sports program, despite it, it, it being just in shambles in terms of the of the conduct of, of some of the coaching. I mean, I just think once I come back to one thing that doesn't get really covered in these discussions that I wish would is that there is shared governance at University of Minnesota. This is a public, the whole system, this is a public system. It's one in which, you know, taxpayers contribute to. It's good to see the courts. I'm, I, I guess I'm just angry that it has to get there, that she has to wait that long, that it couldn't come up to faculty vote, that the faculty just sit back and are complacent, basically, in letting these coaches run a university program. It's not, it doesn't have to be that way. So I I guess I just always wonder to myself, like, why are faculty getting involved in this? And how are they being shut down? Because they're the one sort of like way in here structurally that could solve this before she had to go for years and years and apply to 27 jobs. You know, just it's it's just a, a frustrating thing. It's a gr- great win. It's just sad that she had to go to these lengths. Sure, Lens. Yeah, I want to give a couple of shout outs first to my colleague at Think Progress, Adam Peck, who wrote our story on this lawsuit on Friday and who a bunch of my intro was actually taken from his story. So he did the legwork there, but also to the reveal for the Center of Investigative Reporting, who... I believe it was in 2016, although it might have been just last year, did a big investigation. And they really dug into Title IX and female coaches. And one of the things their investigation revealed was not just that we have this problem of so few, the percentages going down of women in coaching, but also that female coaches who witness or experience discrimination in their departments and report it to administrators are often swiftly fired or forced out of their positions. So in many cases, allegations against the female coaches surface for the very first time after they report discrimination. So in other words, all of a sudden, these complaints about their job performance magically appear out of thin air the second they go to the athletic director to talk about Title IX discrimination. So Annie Brown, who was the reporter on that investigation, found that in the past decade, retaliation lawsuits have been filed by at least 29 female coaches and eight female sports administrators against their university. And when she looked deeper into these cases, she noticed that 13 coaches in retaliation cases were accused of mistreating or verbally abusing their players. So there's a, in other words, there's this pattern across college athletics in the United States of female coaches being accused of mistreating their players only after they come forward to complain about gender discrimination. Can we burn that? Like <laughs> That's just ridiculous. Absolutely, we can burn it. I think it's also really important to recognize like these systems that exist. And the fact that you said retaliation lawsuit, it's so sad that that has to happen because we understand that these lawsuits are not cheap. It costs money and mental energy and emotional energy and so much labor to just get justice. And it really sucks that this had to happen in the first place with Shannon Miller. Yeah, I want to give a a shout out to Jane Meyer, who actually won a big lawsuit. She was at the University of Iowa, and she got a, a, I believe it was a one point 
seven four million dollar settlement. I'm sorry that that might be a little bit off, but it was it was above a one million dollar settlement of for a Title IX discrimination, and this was just earlier this year. Or excuse me, it was May of 2017, and she was an athletics administrator, and that was it was a very similar lawsuit to the one that Shannon Miller filed at 1.43 million dollars in damages from the Polk County jury and university in in Iowa. So it's it's really exciting to see this trend, I would say, of women speaking up and finding justice through the court system. And hopefully that will, you know, if apparently doing the right thing isn't keeping these male administrators in line. So maybe, you know, the threat of money will. Brenda, do you want to take us into um, your interview? Sure. While I was here in Argentina, I was lucky enough to get to go to the women's national team training and take advantage of that opportunity and speak with Gabby Garton, who had played for Rice University and is the goalkeeper of the Argentine national women's team. I'm so excited to be talking today with Gabby Garton, keeper for the Argentine national women's team, professional club player here in Argentina. And also an amazing master's student and scholar of the game. Gabby, you've been playing in Argentina for five years now, professionally. And before that, you were at Rice University. How was your college career? Let's just say my time at Rice was a little bit disappointing. Growing up, obviously, when you're playing club soccer, basically your main goal is to be able to get to college and play at a Division One level and hopefully get a scholarship to do so. But honestly, my experience wasn't anything like what I was hoping it was going to be. I thought it was going to be where you get there and, you know, college was a great opportunity to grow as a player, as a person, and that the coaches were going to be, you know, capable of, of leading you through that. But unfortunately, it's almost like the main goal, which is not so surprising, I guess, is winning, right? That's the that's the bottom line. So a lot of times coaches would find it easier to maybe recruit new players instead of working on the players that they had with them. And also, I think a lot of the, the times I felt like this and some other girls who probably didn't get as much playing time as they would have liked felt as well that their value for the coaches, coaching staff is completely based on what they could offer on the field. And as a time in your life, like when you're going through college, you're kind of trying to figure out what, what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. And when your whole value at a, at a time is, is placed entirely upon how much playing time you get or what a coach thinks of you, it's really difficult to kind of work through that. And no, honestly, <laughs> I actually still have nightmares. Like I, I, It was just like a, a time where I, I kind of stopped enjoying soccer almost. Like I dreaded going to practices. I still have nightmares where I wake up like sweating and so scared that I got I showed up late to practice or dreams where I, I forget my cleats or my gloves or something at home and I I come back and I'm late for practice. It's just like that kind of strange, I don't know, fear of, of messing up that I felt was instilled in me during that time. So honestly, when I got the chance to play in Argentina, it was kind of, like the the passion that I originally had for soccer and or football, I guess it was kind of reignited. I think uh, learning to enjoy it again and train without so much stress, maybe like not fearing a not, not, like training without the fear of making a mistake. I guess would be the way I'd put it. Obviously, there's pressure because 
know, you're playing at a club level and a competitive level, but I just felt the pressure was different than when I was at Rice. How did you end up on the Argentine national team? Okay, so I guess my arrival with the national team or the way I got to the national team was kind of crazy. Honestly, I think if it hadn't been for Rice, I, I wouldn't be in Argentina probably, ironically enough. When I was going into my senior season, my goalkeeper coach at Rice told me that there was an incoming freshman who, her name's also Gabby, who had had experience training with the U17 national team in Argentina and had contact information for the coach and had mentioned that they were actually looking for goalkeepers. And so through Gabby, I was able to get in touch with Carlos Borrello, who's the the coach now, and he was the coach at the time. There was a period between 2013 and 2016 where he wasn't involved in AFA. But when I was, this was in 2011, when I was getting originally getting in touch with him. And yeah, he invited me down for a trial. I went for two weeks. I trained like the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday schedule that, that they have now. And it was a really eye-opening experience for me. I guess just coming from from college where you have everything in terms of like material things, equipment, clothes, everything. You have everything pretty much handed to you and ready, you know. You show up for preseason and you already have four training shirts, shorts, uh, all your game gear. Uh, they give you cleats. For goalkeepers, they would give us gloves. Everything we really needed. And when I got to Argentina, when I, you know, I showed up, I think actually it was wearing some rice gear. The girls were like, they all loved the clothes. They're like, that's such a, that's so awesome here. We don't get anything, you know, like, what do you mean? You don't get to keep any of the clothes we train in? No, I mean, you show up at the locker room, you get dressed in the clothes that they, they have set out for you. And then when you leave, you have to leave the clothes behind, like any of the gear. And that was just one thing. It was also the fact that they had to pay for their own cleats. Girls who often, it was difficult to be able to put together enough money to buy a decent pair of cleats, especially since in Argentina, any sort of clo- like article of clothing, and even more so for sports gear, is probably at least 50% more expensive than in the States. And you're talking salaries that are pro- at least a third of what you know people make in the U.S. monthly. So, And for these girls, even less, probably. So it was just... Something that I was shocked and was curious as to what it was that what kept them playing then, because they would also tell me that the league wasn't that great and that you know they weren't really ever sure if they were going to get to play on the weekend because the games would get suspended and then they'd get passed to the next weekend. And the tournaments, a tournament that had 14 teams in it, sometimes would last like a whole year or more. And but just because of a, a lack of organization. And that they would sometimes get to play. Things have improved since then. But at that time, sometimes they'd have four games scheduled in a month, but they'd only end up playing one because of weather. And then they wouldn't play in the week. So games would get pushed on. But just talking to them, it was was clear that what, like just being able to wear the clothes from the Argentine national team and, and being able to think about representing their country was something that was enough to push them and to continue playing in those conditions. Uh, at the time, there were very few girls who were playing out of the country. Uh, so they were all pretty much in in the, the league in AFA and Buenos Aires. Something I've been thinking about too is that they wouldn't receive, they were completely, I guess, marginalized in AFA. Like the, it's almost like you feel like women's football is a second thought or even a third, fourth. 
a lot of times people, I think less so now because they have been receiving more coverage, especially after after this, the letter that they sent and when they went on strike. Luckily, the media has been have been giving them a lot more a lot more attention. I guess a lot more coverage than before. But there are people who previously didn't even know that there was a women's national team. And this is something that also happens. Like when I eventually moved to Argentina in 2013, I was initially playing with River, and I don't know, just getting to talk to talking with people. I would mention that I was playing soccer uh, for the women's team, and most people didn't even know that they had a women's team at River Plate. But it's just something that that happens frequently. the The men's team gets immense amounts of coverage, and the women's team is kind of just neglected, and more so than just in terms of coverage that they receive. I think one thing that shocked me when the when I first got to Argentina was the fact that you have these huge, massive clubs like Boca and River who aren't even capable of you know providing providing their teams with the, with the gear that they need. The When I got to River, they were training with clothes that were from the men's team, that had been used by the men's team over like two years before that or something. It was just all old and some of it had holes in it, didn't really fit right. But I guess that's something that's that's unfortunately very common in most teams. And a lot of teams in AFA don't even have like their own training gear. They just have to clean, train with whatever clothes that they have. But I think it's it's interesting that even though, despite all this, especially the girls who play at the clubs that they, they're huge fans of, like especially at Boca, River, San Lorenzo, it's like they're willing to, to put up with those conditions to be able to wear the jersey that they're wearing. But mainly just because of the of what it what that means in terms of men's football. Because Boca, River, and San Lorenzo, for example, they're they're well known but because of what their men's teams have accomplished. The club that I have been playing for over the past two years, Wayurquiza, is one of the clubs that invests probably the most out of the other clubs in AFA, which I'm not saying that it's it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I would say that I play at Wayurquiza and most people wouldn't even know what club I'm talking about. I think for some girls it was kind of like a source of pride to be able to say that they were playing at you know a big club and for people to be kind of taken in by that, but that's... I don't know. I, I think I got tired of it at River and the fact that, yes, you're playing at a big club, but at the same time, you're already measly stipend that you're getting wasn't even a guarantee. Like Sometimes we'd get paid. Some months we'd get paid and other months we wouldn't. And I'm talking about a stipend about of about $20, maybe $30 a month. Like, And some girls, if they were lucky, might have gotten up to 50 a month. But even so, there were times where they'd owe us three months of stipends and you know, there are girls who have to pay for their own transport and their families couldn't even hardly afford it and they couldn't make it to practices. And But at the same time, they're still happy to be there, which is, I guess, I guess it's a good thing that they enjoy it. But at the same time, it's frustrating that that's kind of what you get used to in Argentina. I know, Brenda, you were saying that like, it just makes you so upset to see the conditions that they play in, but the girls try to make the best out of it because it's what they have. But I think, I think slowly things are going to change. But it's going to be a long process. It's going to take a big fight from the, like from the player side, and then also, I don't know. Hopefully, with this new administration in women's football in AFA, uh, they'll be able to work alongside the players to improve the conditions and improve the league. Could you tell me about the collective letter that the that the team sent to the Argentine Football Association a few months ago? 
Well, I wasn't actually with the team in that period of time, but I was in contact with quite a few of the players who were involved. Mainly the letter was, I think, like a culmination of frustrations that the girls have been going through over the years. And when they started training again after about a two-year break, they realized that the conditions were worse than when they had left off. They were training on a turf field. They were in a in a locker room that's intended for futsal, which changed. <laughs> we're still uh, we still change in a locker room that's intended for a team, a sport that involves about twelve to fifteen players, and we we're about well when you have the full number about twenty twenty five girls. So it's kind of uncomfortable, and you only have six showers and a limited period of time to get ready. And then also the fact that they weren't getting paid their stipend their stipends that corresponded to them and a rough trip to Uruguay for a friendly where they had to to travel to Uruguay by boat where they left around four in the morning, had to wait on a bus before the game for about four to five hours, play the match, and then return by boat that same night because the Federation didn't want to pay for a hotel. And I'm pretty sure they didn't get a stipend or any money that was supposed to be paid for them for that day either. And then in Montevideo, they had to wait on the bus for I don't know, until before match time before they could get into the locker room to warm up and stuff they were on the bus for about five hours so and then right after the match they showered and had to head back to Buenos Aires the same night and having to play a match an international match that same day so I think it was like the letter was just a culmination of a, a lot of like poor treatment pretty much and feelings of like not being valued at all by the Federation, which are not inaccurate feelings. And with the change in administration, like the, the president of women's football now is brand new. The one who had been there before him has been around since the 90s and pretty much just ensured that the, the sport wouldn't grow at all. I mean, some of the girls have the opinion that it was most convenient for him if the sport didn't grow, because it would be easier to steal money or skim money off the top from the discipline. I don't know if it's true or not, but I think it's probably very reasonable. But anyway, with this new administration, uh, I think there was hopes that their, you know, that their demands are going to be met. The new president is also the vice president of the club where I was playing, Wired Kisa. And he's done some really good stuff at Wired Kisa, but there are also things, obviously, that could be improved in terms of like stipends and not just stipends, but other, other things having to do with like work schedules. And like when a player wants to leave the club, sometimes it's very difficult for the club to give them permission to go to play with at a different club, even if it's outside the country. But anyway, getting back to the national team, they wrote this letter pretty much just demanding decent treatment. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary asking for a stipend that was reasonable to replace the hours of work that they missed in order to be able to go to practice and to cover travel costs and and asking to play on a grass field, asking for a locker room that's adequate for the amount of players who are present at training. And I think since that letter, they didn't actually come to a direct agreement, but the Federation decided to, to come up with 200 pesos a day in terms of a stipend. So about, like we said, about $10 a day. And we were training on a grass field, but we're still in the same locker room as before. But I think it was good for the Federation to kind of know that the team is is willing to to unite and to fight for things that that are basic rights really i think in in sports nothing out of the ordinary and nothing not, definitely not even close to the same conditions that the men have so 
We'll see what, what happens. Right now, your team's getting ready to play the Copa America. Copa America Femenina starts in Chile April 4th and is the only tournament of its kind in the region. And it qualifies the countries under Commonwealth, just for our listeners who might not know, for some really big events. So, Gabby, how are, what are your hopes? How is the Argentine team looking? I think despite the fact that we haven't been training together for that long, I think that Borello, the head coach, has managed to put together a very talented group of players. There is also, a, in addition to the girls you saw training the other day, there's about seven or eight who are coming in from from leagues around the world. Uh, there's some players coming who play in, in Spain and Brazil and China. I think those are the three main, uh, and one who plays in the United States. She's definitely a huge part, I think, of, of our chances. Uh, we have a first, a tough first match against Brazil. That's definitely going to be the biggest challenge. I don't know. I think very even in terms of the rest of the matches. Like it's going to be a tough, a tough schedule. We have Brazil, Ecuador, Venezuela, and Bolivia in our group. And Bolivia is probably the least developed country in terms of women's football, but Ecuador and Venezuela have been taking huge strides in terms of bettering women's football in their countries. I don't know if it's necessarily the federation itself or just the fact that it's becoming more popular among women to play, but uh, they've definitely been you know, having stronger performances in international tournaments than in the past. So it's going to be a tough, tough group to get through. And then once hopefully we get through the group stage, we're going to need to finish in the top in the top three to have a chance at qualifying for the World Cup and in the top two for qualifying for the Olympics. And then the, the whole top four qualifies for the Pan American Games. We wish you the best of luck in Chile next month. And we appreciate you sharing this incredible story of struggle and dedication with us at Burn It All Down. Brenda, do you want to take us into the discussion about FIFA? Always. <laughs> Without vomiting. I, I was going to try, you know. Yes, I would love to take us into that discussion. So this week, FIFA president Johnny Infantino put together a number of proposals. He's because they're having an executive council meeting in Colombia and among those proposals was uh, this idea of a new global women's league. So as far as the proposal, the competition would feature 16 of the world's top women's national teams and begin to play probably, a, I mean, it looked like, and, and I'm going to go into why this is difficult to articulate, because in fact, Infantino is not articulate. And so it... <laughs> At all, like at all. This is this is like a seriously a kid who did not do his homework and showed up and was like, "Oh well, there's these plans that I have for a league." <laughs> it's like <laughs> so ridiculous. So anyway, he indicated it would be like next year that he's going to pull this brand new tournament together next year and that FIFA would add four regional leagues. Very unclear because there's more than four confederations. So what regions are is he referring to? Like, God knows. And this would encourage, according to him, the development of women's soccer globally. 
And then there would be a system of promotion and relegation. Now, if you're scratching your head, you should be. I mean, he has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> and this is a quote from him. This is, this is the quote. This is the quote. We are also thinking of creating a world women's football league so that all federations can participate because we should not lose sight of the fact that 50% of the world's population is female. <laughs> End of quote. Who's losing sight of that? What? (laughs) And how is a World Women's Football League going to, like, correct everyone's supposed misperception that women are not half of the world's population? No idea how those things correlate. Like I said, kid shows up, no homework, comes up with this stuff. (laughs) Yesterday, I should mention that they decided not to do that. The executive council said, this makes no sense. Yeah, it's a logistical nightmare. It's a logistical nightmare. It makes no sense. And just to give you, I, I just have to say a couple of things. Just one last thing, okay? The New York Times did a story on this, and it's a reporter named, what's his name? It's Oh, it's it's Tarek Panja. And he writes about men's football, and this always drives me crazy. When you go to write about women's football, find someone who gives a fuck about women's football, okay? Because this guy, I, I'm sorry, he, he might be great about men's football, but this is the quote that he said. He says, the rationale behind the idea, which, by the way, has no rationale. So, uh, you know, Tara, I don't know what you're talking about. The rationale behind this idea is to grow interest in the women's game, which until now has been largely financed by the billions of dollars FIFA makes from selling the quadrennial men's World Cup tournament. Hmm. Okay. Women's soccer is not largely financed by FIFA whatsoever. FIFA it has required federations to spend annually $38,500 on their women's team. Yeah. That means that means even the president Wait, of it? UEFA that's it. <laughs> oh my god. So so with the salary of Infantino, you could fund 44 women's national teams per year. So what where are these billions of dollars? So yeah, anyway, they iced it yesterday. It, 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 that's what they call it, icing it. And it all sounds so slimy. But I don't know. Do you guys see maybe I'm being mean about the whole idea. Do you guys see any hope in a tournament like this? Okay, first of all, I do not think you're mean at all. <laughs> I think you've been you've been you've been handling Infantino, who I love that you call Johnny, with kid gloves. But you know, I think that it's it's ridiculous. I think that the entire idea that this is happening, we have to remember that when Infantino took over the presidency in 2016, he platformed largely on women's football, which had just sort of, they'd wrapped up the Women's World Cup in 2015, which was extremely successful. And in my opinion, basically saved FIFA's ass because at the time, like, Sepp Blatter was in like the high of his, yeah. like, you know, corruption and this. So I really think that women's football pulled FIFA through incredibly, despite the lack of respect, remuneration, and, you know, just solidarity and amplification. But Infantino is a politician. Like I was explaining to somebody yesterday that the head of FIFA is not a person who's a guardian or a supporter of the game, particularly the women's game. It's a political position. It's incredibly political. And he strategized and decided to use women's football as a key element in his campaign, which is what he's doing. So he gets up there and it's almost like, saying something like climate change is bad, but I really don't know what to do about it. So he's not getting cookies for declaring that women's football exists and that women are 50% of the population. You don't get cookies for that. You you just don't. The bar is, no, the bar is low, yes, for FIFA, but like, 
there's so many smart people out there, women in particular, that already know this. We don't need him to come up with these. And I was reading the plan, Brenda, and one of the other things that actually bothered me about this was, and Lindsay can speak to this too, Tarek's article was the one that was being recirculated. Like, and and the lack of writing about this also really irritated me was the lack of people reporting on this. So, like in the Toronto Star, they just reprinted Tarek's article, which, as Brenda has like, completely debunked many of his points. So, first, like, of course, I'm going to slam the media because I think the media is trash most of the time, but except for us, obviously. I think, like, I just I get frustrated about the whole bit and how, you know, I think that even they should have had women's executives speak to this, but they can't because there's like none on the executive committee. There's so only one, mind. the former there's Burundi. One. And, Bur- yeah, and this is correct. with all respect for, for Burundi, but that is not a soccer powerhouse that can go in <laughs> and throw their weight around on an executive council. So don't tell me that that wasn't, uh, you know, a particular choice. Yeah. Exactly. It just, you know, what's so infuriating is that they talk about how, okay, yes, 50% of people are women. And what they mean by that is it's a good idea then to develop this sport. And yet they've never <laughs> once followed their own like advice. So, like, what they're saying with that 50% thing is like, is our point, right? Is that, yes, like, it is smart to invest in the women's game because it is going to pay off because this is 50% of the population. And you want to dip into that talent and you want to have that as part of the sport. It only makes sense, you know? And instead they just undermine themselves at every at every turn because they don't actually believe that women deserve the right to, you know, equality. They they believe it, they still in their way believe it's charity and it's sickening. And I don't know, I'm over it. It is. I mean, think about how dumb this is, just for a minute, because this is like a whole level of dumb. 16 of the world's top women's national teams. Okay. Go and look at world rankings for FIFA at the top, which, by the way, are crap anyway, because they literally rank people based on some of these national women's teams like Argentina have played one official match in the last four years. So how do you even rank them? But whatever Coca-Cola sponsors it and FIFA just keeps you know, churning it out every three months. So top 16, top 16 would include what? Two teams, three teams from outside of Europe in the U S like you could just call it, you could just call it like, you know, super global North developed world tournament. Because the only thing you're going to, that's catchy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can see the marketing for that. I mean, it's it's like it's like you know white people play or something. I I just like look sixteen of the top. All I can think of is Brazil. I mean, Shereen, you might be able or or Linz, you might be able to help me here. But all I can think of is Brazil, Japan. Who's not in Europe? Canada, Australia. And the U.S. Besides that, I mean, it's just like so. The, he didn't even think about this. That like yeah. those those are obviously the top sixteen places where women's football's already developed a hole. Like, I mean that that's not where it needs to be developed. The idea is like to develop it globally means not paying attention so much to the top sixteen women's national teams. So his very you know sort of structure of this is just ludicrous. 
Well, I think FIFA should hire you to consult them, Brenda. I would pay to I would pay to watch that happen, actually. You just go into the FIFA X, you know, the Exco boardroom and sit down and lay. But I agree with you. Development doesn't mean and doesn't mean just recognizing and 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 Lindsay, I really take heart to what you said about they consider it like this form of pity. Like we're just acknowledging you. No, women's football is brilliant and amazing, and you don't get to do that. And I think it's the idea of growing it in a global game, I think Infantino is confusing the word developing with supporting and continued support, which is what needs to happen in Canada, in US, in Brazil, where we all know these federations have been like absolutely horrible in dealing with their women's teams, but continue to develop the game, yes, outside of that. And they do have campaigns in, in, in places in the global south, but that's not what it is. Like that can't stop and say, oh, well, we're developing there and we're going to do this. Those women's professional women's team teams that are the, where the football culture is strong still very problematic in a lot of places, absolutely. But the women keep hustling. I mean, that needs the support of FIFA. He doesn't he just wants cookies. Like I can't even. Well, I can't just, even can this. I just add one short thing about this too? Because I get in fights with FIFA's PR people on Twitter, and it always like sucks my soul. <laughs> it's like I'm gonna die four years ahead of time just on the basis of my fights with people like Alex Stone. But I'll just say I've been to FIFA's archives twice in Zurich, which is a creepy 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 thing because there are five stories underground, so you feel like you're uh, like entering the evil Bat Cave. And they will tell you, officially, they do not require any confederations to explain or account for women's development money. So, <sighs> so that means it's in the interest of every single federation to steal that money because they are crooks, by and large. And they don't have to report. And so they, sh- they, they funnel it to the men's game. And that's why I know that Tarek doesn't know what he's talking about when he says that that the FIFA money has, quote unquote, by and large, developed the women's game. He has no idea because FIFA has no idea and none of the confederations have any idea because they're not required to report it. And FIFA says this is something they're literally, I have this quote from Alex Stone that says, we are thinking about how to develop an accountability measure in the coming year. I, I don't even accountable. We oh are God. thinking about maybe accountability. Uh, yeah, that's not how <laughs> accountability works. <laughs> like, well, I like the other stuff. This uh, anything we talk about FIFA in this regard automatically goes on to the burn pile as well. So it's like <laughs> this segue, this perfect segue. Speaking of the burn pile, <laughs> everyone's favorite segment. Lindsay, you want to get us started on this? I would love to. I'm going to take us back to our favorite friends in Michigan. <laughs> so, you know, we <laughs> just love. <laughs> Shout out for all of the content in Michigan. So a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how Rachel Denhollander and other a few other Nassar survivors were in Michigan lobbying for these bills to improve laws for sexual assault victims in Michigan. And it was a pretty, it was an amazing group of laws that had bipartisan support, did things like increasing the statute of limitations and making more people mandatory reporters and just, you know, really common sense stuff that will make people safer. Well, it seemed that it had so much support in Kong in the Michigan uh, legislature. But you know who didn't love this? 
Michigan colleges. <laughs> On a Monday of this week, Michigan's 15 public universities sent a letter asking lawmakers to delay the voting on these bills out of concern that the bills would have a, quote, profound impact and encourage survivors to, quote, file a significant number, end quote, of lawsuits against such universities, churches, and grade schools. So in other words, they're just worried that these laws are going to be too effective and help too many survivors. (laughs) And that's why they want them to not be voted on. So the laws are still going forward. It seems like they still will pass in Michigan. But this is a this is right out of the Catholic Church's playbook is what this is, which is lobbying against laws that will allow more victims and survivors to come forward to seek justice. It's disgusting. And you're simply just not allowed to both say that you want things to be better and that you want to improve. You you recognize that things were bad and you want you want to make things safer in the future while also fighting against this pack of bills that will actually do that in a concrete way. So I would like to throw that on the burn pile. Burn. This week, Brazilian sports reporter for a sports show interativo, Bruno D'Altri was kissed on the mouth on live camera by a fan. This was a game right now. What's going on in South America is Copa Libertadores, which is where all the club teams play each other for it's like the Champions League, but of of South America. So Vasco da Gama in Brazil was playing Universidad de Chile and this fan kissed her on the mouth on live camera. And it's just so horrifying. And to watch her, uh, she... She moves on. She doesn't stop, actually. And 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 the guy went away. And she keeps interviewing fans and talking. But you can just see the paralysis in her body and the discomfort. And she wrote this really amazing Instagram post where she was talking about feeling impotent and feeling like she was unable to do anything. And then later, how she felt even worse for not doing anything, right? Then she felt ashamed of her reaction. And so she wrote the this post, which was really touching and says, you know, sh- I'm doing a rough translation from the Portuguese, but certainly this boy does not understand how much I sacrificed to be there. She meant to be a sports reporter. How much I studied, how much I strived to be able to tell amazing stories and be in front of cameras showing everything live. Colleges, courses, many lost weekends, tactical study, technical research. But for the simple fact of being a woman in the midst of this crowd, none of this had any value to him. End of quote. So I would like to burn all of that. I would like to burn the fan cultures that treat women reporters like this. I just mad love to Bruna and respect for her reaction, but burn the, that fan culture altogether. Burn. Burn. Torch it. I'm going to go next and say that I'd like to burn whatever Canadian hockey curse is out there in the world. <laughs> <laughs> we know that. Um, and whoever is putting that curse on my beloved people. It's the United States, Shireen. It's the it's United Lindsay. States. Okay. I think it's okay. Lindsay. I didn't want to. I didn't want to get personal, but all right. 
We are so proud of all athletes, the para-athletes and the Canadian sled hockey team brought home silver last night, which was amazing. We're so proud of them. We love them in an upset loss to the United States in overtime. So it's the second overtime loss of Canadian Olympic hockey players that is dumbfounded us. And whatever is out there, whatever grandma has put some type of curse on us, I don't know, but I'd like to burn that. And I just mad respect. I know this is a burn pod, but just want to shout out mad respect to the Canadian para-athletes who have brought home 28 medals, a big jump from the 19 that we had before. So as this is a burn, it's also a mad respect and love, but it is a burn of that curse because in four years, we will be back. Okay. We will. This is the but first time I can't shout burn. I can't agree with that. <laughs> See, she did do the curse. I told you. I told you, Shireen. <laughs> Lindsay's been way too happy with this situation. I know. Well, oh I look, I'm sorry. The, the U- I've been doing a story that it will come out this week on some of the U.S. para-athletes and the, the sled hockey team. And this is their third goal in a row in the Olympics. And that's just incredible. And so I just I'm, – I'm happy for them. So I'm going to burn can't. it for you, Shireen. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Moving on to our happy, happy, we can all agree this is happy, Badass Woman of the Week in the Honorable Mentions. This was really incredible. Julia Hurricane Hawkins, 102-year-old, set a record at the USA Track and Fields Masters Track, 100 meters and 60 meters, with a time of 24.79. Now, the video for this is incredible, and we'll link it, but 102 years old. Also, Tiffany Abra, who was the first transgender volleyball player in Brazil Superliga, has been inspiring legions of fans in Brazil on her route to an Olympic 2020, hopefully, appearance. Chloe Raleigh scored a try and extended Scotland's lead over Ireland in rugby, which was pretty amazing. And the way that this went down was brilliant. So shout out to Chloe for also amplifying rugby in Scotland. On the note of rugby, New Zealand's rugby union is now offering 30 women paid contracts, which is the first of its kind. And we know that the Black Ferns are the world champions currently in women's rugby. So this is really incredible. And also shout out to Aubrey Bloomfield, a friend of the show who gave us a hat tip on this. I would also like to shout out, as an honorable mention, Stephanie Labbe, who is a Canadian goalkeeper with the national soccer team is actually the first woman to try out for Calgary Foothills FC men's under 23 team, which plays in the premier development league, a third tier league behind major league soccer and the United soccer league. She is not playing with Washington spirit anymore and decided to do this. And Stephanie's also been very, very, very open and honest about her struggles with depression and mental health. And I just wanted to shout her out because I think she's amazing. So drum roll, please for badass woman of the week. <laughs> that's, that's like guppies. God. Yeah, you sound like toddlers. We're getting worse at this. <laughs> Congratulations to Shannon Miller. Just wanted to shout you out again. We had a whole segment, but well deserved. Um, you know, we love you. We think you're amazing, and may you keep rocking. And hopefully, this is the start of a whole bunch of new things. So. What's good, friends? Brenda, tell me what's good. I'm back to teaching this week, only in Spanish. 
So it's a little bit daunting, a four-hour, they do four-hour blocks here. But it's going to be something that's going to press me, push me, stretch my brain. And I'm really excited to learn from the students. Just really excited. So that's what's good in my week. Awesome. Lindsay? Yeah. A a dear friend of mine, we celebrated her getting her green card yesterday. So that is good. I'm very excited for her. And next weekend, I'm going away on a little little two-day vacation that will apparently involve me being in a cabin that has no Wi-Fi and no cell service. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Bye. Wow. (laughs) The only problem is that it's March Madness, so that's going to be really, really hard for me. And my poor friends uh, who don't care about sports at all are probably going to have to to trek into town so I can watch some games. So, you know, it's look, it's part of my charm. You guys just have to love me. So and there we we'll go. send you yeah, messages in a bottle. Lynn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <please. laughs> I have a pigeon carrier service available. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, um, I'll send that. And for me, I was really proud for the launch of um, I'm part of this initiative called the Muslim Women in Sports Network. And I've been working quietly with a couple of women, Rimla Akhtar in the UK, Asma Halal in Australia, Nida Ahmed in New Zealand, and Indira Kalyo, who is in Saudi Arabia. And we had been having ridiculous Skype meetings because everyone's all over the world. Like it was just someone's like midnight and someone's 5 a.m. And the to put out a power list of 30 incredible women all over the world, globally, different sports, different ethnicities. And it's an initiative by Muslim women for Muslim women to take back the narrative and amplify what we need to. And I'm really, really, really proud of that. And I think we did tweet it out from the Burn It All Down account. Secondly, I am going on a cruise with my kids and my parents. And I'm very excited about it. I will not have Wi-Fi either for seven days. And I'm really excited about it because the idea of being on this floating thing in the middle of the ocean really appeals to me. And I'm actually a big fan of cruises and I've never been on one. So I'm super excited. I will report back. Hopefully, I will get March Madness. I don't know how that's going to work on a floating thing in the middle of the water, but hopefully it'll work because because you guys uh, are both, me. what am I going to do? I'm going to be so lonely. <laughs> You're both. <laughs> no, no. no I, Jess and Amira will be there for pigeons. you. We love them Jess too. Yeah. Wait, Shireen, can I just say really quickly that I have just read so many horror stories about cruises so just be nice to everyone you meet okay like I, I know you're lovely and nice to everyone anyways but just be super duper nice <laughs> super duper super- nice. unless they're like american hockey no, cursing no, no. on canadian Shereen, hockey Shereen, the thing is like people i, I don't want to scare you but bad things happen on cruises according to every television show i've ever watched so what about the love just boat? Be, what about the, the love, love boat, boat? I, I just am, be they solve be, your whole problems be nice. That's so. So that's what I'm saying. Be you know, channel the love, nice. Shireen. Because okay, I, okay. I, I know you're very nice, but sometimes <laughs> I'm feisty. No, no, no. I love Lindsay gently nudging me to be a kind person. I love. That. I just read so many horror oh, stories of people disappearing from boats and never to be seen again. Oh so. my god! Yeah. Oh my god! No. <laughs> sorry. 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 Okay, no, I I it agree totally. To you, um, I will, yes, I know. I I will behave. Okay. 
that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. I do want to take this time to thank our flamethrowers for contributing to our Patreon campaign and remind those that haven't, this is a great opportunity to do so. So you pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want to become an official patron of the podcast. And in exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. With the price of a latte a month, you can get extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, and an opportunity to record on the burn pile, only available to those in our community. We are so thankful for everyone who has contributed and are just still marching towards our goal of hiring a full-time producer to help us with the show. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we believe in this podcast. And having a producer to help us as we grow would be amazing as would be the opportunity for us to all meet and go on the road for live Burn It All Down. So on behalf of Lindsay, Brenda, I'm Shereen Ahmed, and that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. And I'm sorry.